good morning again. Just excited. Thank you, Sonny. Just <laughs> excited to dig into God's Word and see what He has for us. We are, uh, if you've been here the past couple of weeks, we've begun our study of the book of Genesis. 50 chapters, so we're having to take sort of big chunks at a time. Uh, but last week, if you remember, we saw an overview of the week of creation, the creation week. And we saw during, uh, through that, that creation is not evolution. This is a, a, a fact, it is a reality that there is a God, He did create, that is reasonable. Remember we talked about that? That science has not proved anything that should make us doubt the reasonableness of our faith. And, and that has huge implications if we do have a creator. And last week we saw in day six that God created mankind. But it sort of just gave a, a little snippet, and that's what was actually read earlier this morning. Um, but what we see in chapter 2 that we're going to be looking at today is God, or Moses, I guess, who wrote this, um, zooms in on the creation of mankind. So, so where chapter 1 brushed over it with all, all the other creation, it now zooms in to the creation of mankind. So if you want to turn there, you can in your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 2. Uh, verses 4 through 17. This is chapter 2, verses 4 through 17. And the main question I want to uh, answer and, and, and search out uh, from scriptures is, what makes mankind peculiar in creation? Now some of you say, well, they're, they're just weird. You know, no, what makes us different and distinct from the rest of creation? What makes us different than a rock or a tree or a rabbit? What makes us different even from an, an ape, you know? Um, what makes us different? You know, this really is important. I was uh, talking to a guy a, a while back, and I, I was trying to witness to him, so I'm, you know, asking what he's doing and uh, what he's about and stuff. And he said he was headed to uh, Turtle Island to go protect the turtles. I was like, oh, that's, that's cool, you know, protecting the turtles. I'm, I'm for that. And uh, he then asked what I do, you know, and that's always an interesting turn in the conversation you know, well, I, I'm in ministry, I work at church, and, you know, and so I'm telling him that, and, you know, things, the, the whole tone sort of changes, uh, but I asked him, hey, so have you ever been involved in church? He said, yeah, I, I used to be involved in a church, uh, but, but I left because I disagreed with them because they felt that humans were more important than animals, that humans were more valuable than animals, so I left. <laughs> All of a sudden, the Turtle Island thing made a little more sense, um, so I continued to talk with this guy nicely. Don't, don't get me wrong. I, I wasn't uh, bashing him or anything, but I, I explained to him basically what we are going to talk about today, that, that humanity is a distinct, peculiar creation among all that God made. I, I went on to, to tell him, you know, weaving in the gospel, well, Jesus didn't die for turtles. He died for humans, you know, to take away our sin, and, you know, that didn't go very far. But anyways— that's a, another story for another day. What we're going to look at is, is important stuff today. People have, have confusion about humanity, who we are, what we were made to be. If we're to understand salvation, then we need to understand the nature of man. Who we were, what went wrong, that'll be in a couple weeks. If we're to understand things like, you know, the sanctity of life, we had Sanctity of Life Sunday a little while back, or, or being pro-life, we need to understand what is so different, what is so worth protecting in a human life, what is so important. 
In addition, there are some, actually a great deal of people, who malign God. They speak ill of God by saying, why would God, if, he's, if there's really an all-powerful, good God, why is God, why would he put us on, on this messed up planet? You know, where there's uh, destruction and decay and death and sin. Why would he put us here? But the question that we're going to look at today is, well, is that the way the world was when he put us here? <laughs> is it God's fault that we live in a messed up world? Is that the way it originally was? So that's what we're going to look at today. From Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 17. We'll, we'll read through that now. Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 17. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and it was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden, planted a garden in, the, in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's God's word. Let's pray. Father God, we desperately desire to understand everything that you've revealed to us in your word. God, we want to, to know the significance of what you've shown us. We want to be changed by what you've shown us. But God, we, we need your work. We, we need your help. We cannot do this alone. We're, we are we are deaf and blind to your word unless you open our hearts. So God, that's what I ask you to do, to do now for all of us. God, open our hearts by your spirit. Teach us, train us, change us. In your son's name, amen. All right, so I've read to you that passage, and we're going to go back through it and, and see what makes mankind distinct. The, the first verse there, verse 4, is what I call kind of the, the introductory verse. This is telling us uh, what we're going to be studying the rest of, of the, the sermon and, and really through the rest of uh, Genesis and even to the end of Revelation. Don't worry about that. But here's what we see in verse 4. It's going to tell us what we're talking about. These are the generations 
of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now that word generations is talking about people, okay? It's talking about descendants. In Hebrew, it's the word tolada, and it can be translated genealogy, uh, family history, or again, descendants. And all through the Bible, we see this word, the, the generations, the tolada, used to introduce to us a person or a people, a family line that it will continue to talk about. This happens with, with Noah. It, it'll say, uh, these are the generations of Noah. And then it will go on to tell the story of Noah. We see that, that again for uh, Ishmael and Isaac and Esau and Jacob and many others, even just in Genesis. But that continues through the rest of the Bible. These are the generations. So this is talking about people who, who are part of this heaven and earth when it was created. Now, um, again, we're, we're zooming in today. So we're zooming in on humanity. I, I, I want to point out something. Chapter 1 of the Bible. There are other places that creation is mentioned and described, but we have one chapter of the Bible describing uh, God's creating the heavens and the earth. Then chapter 2 immediately starts talking about people. And then through the rest of the Bible, that's what we see, God's relationship with people. That's, that's important to notice. There's something important about people to God. Uh, you even see here, this is interesting, I, I thought, um, it says there, in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, the Lord God. That is the first time in Scripture that Lord God is used. Every other time it had just been God, Elohim, Elohim. This is the, just the general term for God, this uh, authority, um, Elohim. But here, we have God's personal name, Yahweh, which is translated Lord. That's God's personal, his uh, relational name. And then we, we see it all through the rest of this passage and even through the rest of the Bible that this term is now Lord God, this, this relational God. And that's fitting, right? Because before we were talking about water and trees and birds, but now we are talking about people. This is important. We need to see God's relationship with people. Okay, so we know the subject matter from that, that introductory verse, verse 4. But now we can begin to, to look at the text and see some important points about this original creation. What makes mankind distinct? What's, what's so different about us? Number one, let's look at the original creation, is the location of humanity. The location. God, God creates the earth and, and all these things, but, but what was that like? Was it always this broken world that we uh, now live in? Were there always, you know, tornadoes and floods? Was there always uh, decay and death and pain? Again, I, I understand the critic that says, why would God put us in this world and we've just got to suffer through it? I understand that. But if we see the, the setting or the location that God originally put us in, we'll begin to see God in a different view. Let's look at it. In these verses, um, verse 5, it says, when no, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. We're going to pause there. So just the beginning of verse 5. When no brush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had sprung up. This is uh, an interesting text. It actually uh, is, because there are several opinions about what it's talking about. Well, there's no brush, so God hadn't yet created uh, vegetation. 
But it's weird because we've just seen this introductory verse, right, that says we're going to talk about humankind. We're going to talk about people. And so it makes sense to me that this is most likely not talking about that original vegetation that God created in verse 3. We're already past that. We're on verse, or, uh, day 3 today um, at this point in the text. We're on day 3, not—I'm sorry, we're on day 6, uh, not, not looking back at day 3. So what is it talking about? What is this bush of the field and small plant of the field that had not yet sprung up? And I think we need to, to pay attention to this, because if God put it in his word, there's a purpose behind it, right? There's something about it that we are to understand. What are the, 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 this bush of the field and this small plant of the field? Uh, as I studied and, and thought about it and, and looked through uh, different cross-references of these words being used, I saw a hint in the very next chapter of the Bible. We, we're in Genesis 2, in chap chapter 3, we see this. In verses 17 to 19. This is God pronouncing the curse on all creation after Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. This is part of the curse. Verse 17, and, and to Adam God said, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eat of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Now, I'll just stop there. So part of this curse, you notice, is that, that the, the ground will bring forth thorns and thistles, and Adam will have to eat the plants of the field. This is, this is different than the, the, the trees, the vegetation that he was originally supposed to eat of. So what's this talking about? What I think this is pointing out to us here in Genesis 2-5 is that the curse was yet to be on the ground. The earth only brought forth good vegetation that was good for food, that provided an abundance. Now, we, we will see later in Genesis 3 that thorns and thistles, if you're a gardener or, or like, like to hike or anything, you know thorns and thistles are no good. <laughs> They're no fun. Uh, and it says there, you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. No longer is there this, this abundance of, of crops and, and no need to, to really tend it and weed it and to keep things away from it that would stifle its growth. But, but later, after the fall, these things happen. All of a sudden, you have the, these uh, weeds and thorns and thistles choking out the life of the vegetation. So here in Genesis 2, we see the goodness of God's creation, that, that there were, were no bad vegetation. That might sound small to you, but this is sustenance. This is life for people. The next thing that we see, and uh, this, by the way, I think is, is super interesting. I'd never thought of some of this stuff until I started uh, digging in and studying it. It says here in the, the rest of verse 5 and then verse 6, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Okay, so what's the significance of this? Again, why is this in the text? It says there that it had not yet rained in the land, but there was a mist going up from, uh, from the land watering everything. By the way, the, 
this is just a side note, the word mist there isn't super accurate. Uh, it'd be better translated springs came up from the ground. This isn't necessarily that it was foggy all the time. It was that that water was bubbling up from the ground is, is really a, a better translation. But it says there, it had not yet rained. That's what we're going to look at here. It had not yet rained. Does anyone know when it first rained on the earth? It, it wasn't in Ad, um, Adam and Eve's day. Noah's day. That's about a thousand years later from what we understand from uh, gene genealogies and their ages of when they lived and died. So it was uh, quite a while later. Now here's the question. Why did it rain? <laughs> did God think it would just be beautiful to sprinkle some, some rain down? The rain was judgment on the wickedness of mankind. <laughs> That's when it first rained. It wasn't so we could have these pretty showers to go splash in puddles. The rain was judgment on a wicked world, destroying all the wickedness. Have you ever thought about the fact that rain, the fact that we have rain, is actually judgment on the earth? In the Garden of Eden, in, in those first days, there wasn't rain. Now, listen, sometimes rain is a blessing. I get it. And we, we desire and pray for rain. But that's just the thing. Rain is unpredictable. We, they had these springs coming out of the ground that were watering everything, but now we deal with rain. Sometimes we don't get enough of it. There's, there's famines. There's forest fires. Uh, I remember, I guess it was last year, uh, my wife and I decided to take a little uh, date trip, you know, to, to Asheville, North Carolina. And... Um, we're like, this is going to be awesome. We'll go hiking and just walk around. You know, it's an outdoors place, so you spend your time outdoors. But that was when all the forest fires were going on. <laughs> on our drive up, rather than seeing these scenic mountains, we literally saw the fire off the side of the road. And we'd walk around, and we'd just be choked by it. So we ended up spending most of the time inside. This is because of rain. It withholds the water that the, that the um, earth needs because sometimes we have too little rain. But on the other hand, sometimes we have too much rain, right? You think of whole cities that get flooded. You think of uh, crops that are drowned by the rain rather than being uh, uh, given their, their nutrients and, and their, the water that they need. Some, I mean, rain is just unpredictable. It was actually a judgment compared to the water that, that came forth from the springs. So I tell you all this to say, when God first created the heavens and the earth and, and made this habitation for mankind, there was nothing to worry about. There wasn't this worry, will we have rain? Will we have water to drink and water for our, our vegetation? Or will we have too much rain and be flooded out of our house? They didn't have to worry about things. There was this continual, consistent watering, sustaining of life on the earth. I think that, that's a, a cool thing to notice. I, I just had never thought of rain as judgment, but I believe that's what it's telling us here. It's, it's setting us up to see how good creation was. There wasn't this bad vegetation, and we, there was no rain. There was no fear of too much or too little rain. The next thing we see, verses 7 through 9, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And here we go for the location. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. 
And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So here we see, not only is mankind placed on the earth, where there was not yet the curse and things were all good and perfect, but God has actually made a special place in a perfect world for the first creatures. He has provided for them. He has placed them in the Garden of Eden. This is awesome. God plants a garden, this special place for them. And it says there that he made uh, to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight. So that means the Garden of Eden was beautiful. These trees were beautiful in the garden. And it says that they were good for food. This is, again, pre-fall. I I just kind of, sometimes we miss things. These these (laughs) fruits that would have come from these trees would have been absolutely delicious every time. You wouldn't have a bitter one that you got to throw away every now and then, a soft one, one that goes to, these were perfect. And we'd have had perfect, uh, Adam and Eve would have had perfect taste buds (laughs) to taste these fruits. This was an incredible blessing from God that he put them in this special place in an already perfect place world. Then we see further that this location was full of wealth and beauty. Listen to uh, verses 10 through 12. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx, and onyx stone are there. We see that that in this area, in this whole region, there's this gold all over the place. And the gold is good. There's bdellium. This is a a fragrant mineral that they had just just laying around, evidently. And onyx stone are there. These precious, beautiful stones. God puts them in this land full of of wealth, full of beauty, full of these uh, even fragrant incenses that they could smell. This is a beautiful place where God has put mankind. It's a beautiful place. I, I don't think we can overemphasize God's plan that he, he created man and he placed them in a perfect place. Now, there's one more thing I want to point out from these verses, and I just think this is important. It was an actual historical place. This is not fairyland we're talking about, okay? Uh, we've already just seen he's telling you about the rivers and all these places and it goes on in 13 and 14 to describe even more the name of the second river is the Gihon it, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush and the name of the third river is the Tigris which flows east of Assyria and the fourth river is the Euphrates <laughs> why would God bother to give all this detail about these these rivers and where they went and the lands they went around I think he wants to make a point to us this was an actual historical place. This, this really existed. Now, we cannot pinpoint this on a map, by the way. The flood <laughs> would have changed the flow of these rivers. It would have changed the geography and topography. So, but what we do know is that it was a real place. People like to act like to, to insist that the garden is just this imaginary place that, and you know, a fairy tale that Christians believe. But he's giving us here the exact location where it was. It was an actual historical place. 
And this place, where God put them, did not have any intrusive, annoying, destructive plants growing yet. No thorns or thistles. They didn't have to work for their food in that sense. The vegetation uh, and the water they needed to drink wasn't produced by, by rain, wasn't provided by rain that's unpredictable, but by this constant flow of water that came up from the ground. Then, if that wasn't good enough, God puts mankind in a special place. He plants for them specifically a garden with, with uh, beautiful trees and delicious food. And then God adorns the land for them. He's got this gold, bdellium, and onyx stone. This is a beautiful thing. Guys, earth was paradise when God created mankind. God didn't, you know, create man and then drop him off in a bad neighborhood and say, okay, good luck. It may feel like that sometimes, that, that, you know, why would God even put us here with all these struggles, pains, and aches? That's not the way it was. God is good, and everything that he created is good. Well, we'll see later, and we'll get there, that sin messed up the world. It put a curse on the world because of our sin. Okay, now we know the location. Absolute paradise for the first mankind, prepared for mankind. But what else can we learn about this peculiar creation of humanity? Number two in your notes, the construction of humanity. What, what, what is our makeup as humanity? What are we made of? What, what, are, what kind of people are we? We see this, the construction of humanity, in verse 7. It says there, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So there are at least two incredibly important things that we need to see from this verse about the construction, about the makeup of mankind. The first thing that we see is that this first man was formed of the dust of the ground. He was formed of the dust of the ground. Why would God create the first man out of the dust? He, he spoke all these other things into existence, but, but with man, he, he creates them from the ground. Here's what I think. I think that if we weren't created directly drawn from creation, we might begin to think that we are God. That we are God. Now, sadly, even with this, some people still think they're God. I, I get that. But by forming the first man from the dust, think about this, man is created from the creation, from the dust. Then woman, we'll see next week, is created from his side. Then after that, everyone, all of us, have been created by reproduction since then. Man is surely creation. We are not God. This is so important. God even, uh, I love this, he uses a play on words in the original Hebrew. Uh, the word man in Hebrew is Adam. Okay, uh, it's Adam, I know, but here it's not a, a, um, a personal noun, you know, it's, um, it's just the word for mankind. It says, the Lord formed the Adam of the dust of the ground, the, the man of the dust of the ground. This is significant, that it's Adam, because the word for ground is Adama, 
You see that? Adam, Adama. God even unites the, our, our title as a species with where we have come from. We are from the ground. From, from dust we have been made. We are created. We are creaturely. We are not God. This should humble us. You are not God. I am not God. We are creatures. But there's one more thing about the first man. You could say, well, everything that's, that's created is creaturely, and I get that, but there's something different about this first man and all humanity since then. Well, we see there in verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the, formed the man of the dust of the ground, here we go, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God breathes the breath of life into the nostril of this first man for him to become a living creature. Now, Genesis 1.30 says that all living creatures uh, have the breath of life, but here we only, with humanity, see God personally and intimately breathe life into man. Further, it says that he breathed that life into his nostrils, this is, this is, I mean, crazy language here. It's, it's like God is putting his mouth up to the face of mankind and, and, and kindly breathing that life into him. There is something different going on here than, than the, the breath of life that just every living creature has. And I think chapter 1, as we read earlier this morning, actually gives us a little insight as to what is going on here. Why did he breathe? that breath of life into him in that way. Verses 26 and 27 says this, of chapter 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And skipping to 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what we see here is that mankind is indeed creaturely of the dust, but mankind is different from every other thing in all creation because mankind is made in the image of God. Mankind is made in the image of God. Well, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, let me just use a simple illustration. If you were to, you know... Uh, paint a picture of the outside of this church that's maybe a, a common uh, kids painting or drawing they, they draw it and they have created an image of the church they've created an image of the thing they have painted or drawn even if you take a picture you have created an image that you might look at on your phone that's not the real thing right it's just an image of that thing and that's what we see here is that humanity was created to be an image, a reflection of God on this earth. We're to reflect God. People should be able to look at humans and see something of God. Now, do we look like God, you know, physically? Does God have a, a body like us? I mean, I'll just ask you, did, did God have a body before the incarnate <laughs> Jesus? No. John tells us that, that God is spirit. So it's not our looks that image God. It must be something else. And there have been many theories and thoughts on what this exactly is, and we see it some in, in Scripture. 
We can see it in our creativity, that humans have creativity like God. We've just seen God create the heavens and the earth. He has invented and formed these things, and, and you see that in humans. We, we invent, we, we, we form things, we change things. We're always making things better. My dog at home does not invent anything. She tears up everything, honestly. You know, uh, th this is something that only humans do, this creative ability used to reflect God. You can think about morality. Humans have a moral compass, I guess you could say, rather than just mere nature, okay? Uh, you can train a dog to do the quote-unquote right thing, but they're, they're not thinking morals. They're not thinking they're sinning against you. They're thinking, I don't want to get spanked, and I want a treat. <laughs> so they listen to you. Animals do not care about morals. But humans were created with a capacity for moral choice. I will do the right thing, or I will do the wrong thing. We even see that in this chapter. God tells them, you can eat of any tree, but don't eat of this tree. He has just given them morality. Do the right thing. Don't do the wrong thing. God has created us with that ability. And the biggest uh, things that I see, honestly, that these just encompass everything about our lives, is that we are to reflect God's reign, God's character, and goodness. God's reign. Think about that. God is king. He is God. He is the master of the universe. And he has placed us here to show his reign. It's actually an interesting thing. You may have heard this uh, but in ancient times, it was very common for kings, when they would conquer an area, to put statues of themselves up in that place. And the, the literal word they'd use was, was images. They, they put up an image of themselves. You even see this today, uh, especially in more like communistic countries. You'll see huge pictures of their president. And, and why are they doing that? It's to remind people, this is the guy who's in control. This is the leader. This is the person reigning. You know, I, I think about that, and I say, well, how do I show that God reigns? Well, I think we do it in a couple ways. I think we do it by our allegiance to him and our obedience to him. He is my master, and I obey him. Mankind originally did this perfect. We showed his reign. We obeyed him. We, we had allegiance to him. Next, I think it shows his character. Just think about all the times in the Bible that we're told to reflect God when it says, you are to be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. That, that happens over and over throughout the Bible. I am the Lord God. You are to be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. What that means is we don't live by the standards of culture. We, we, we have this God who is perfect and holy and sinless, Therefore, we are to reflect his character by this perfect, holy sinlessness. Again, we do not do that perfectly, and, uh, but, but the, the first people did. They reflected that. Next thing I see, uh, just thinking through the Bible, is God's goodness was to be reflected by Adam and Eve. Just think about God's uh, infinitely good. He's infinitely compassionate and loving and the world was to see that through people. That's why, even now, we're, we're, we're told to take care of the weak and the downtrodden. 
because that's what God would do. He takes care of the weak and the downtrodden and the needy. I would even say that's why we are to love our neighbor as ourself. We're to show God's love. Interesting side note there. This neighbor who we are loving as ourself is also made in the image of God. We are showing our love for God by loving someone made in the image of God. And when we sin against them, we are showing that we do not have that love for for God. That's, That's the whole idea there. So this is incredibly important stuff. Male and female. Of the dust, made in the image of God. We're shown this by God breathing life in the nostrils. Man taken, or a woman taken from the side, and us through reproduction. We're of the dust, but we're still made in the image of God. You might wonder again, are we still made in the image of God? We are post-fall. The sin happened, right? They did not reflect God the way that they were supposed to. Are we still made in the image of God? Is there still really sanctity of life in that way? I would say 100% yes. We are still made in the image of God. That, That imaging, that reflecting of God has been marred for sure, but the dignity is still there. That each individual, you, me, everyone, the unborn, are made in the image of God. We see in Genesis chapter 9, this is after sin, Genesis 3 is sin. Genesis chapter 9, God says to Noah, talking about people made in the image of God. Later in the New Testament, James 3, we're told to be careful how we use our mouths to others who are made in the image of God. Fearfully, wonderfully made in the image of God. That is every human. Now, again, it's been uh, marred. I just want to say this. Spoiler alert. The reason Jesus later (laughs) comes, lives, dies, and uh, is resurrected is so that the image of God in us could be more and more restored. At the moment of salvation, we image, we reflect God better than we ever have. And then sanctification, growing in Christ, is growing in the image of Christ. We become more like him. I just figure I need to throw that in here. This is a beautiful plan God has for us that even though we marred his image in ourselves, he is restoring it through Christ. So what's the construction of mankind? We have the humility of creatureliness, right? I am but dust before God. I have drawn from the earth. But we have the dignity and responsibility of being made in the image of God, reflecting him in all that we do. And that's the way it was with these first people. They were creaturely, but they, they reflected the divine perfectly. That is what was peculiar about the creation of mankind. Okay, so what else makes mankind distinct? We'll see this uh, in, in, oh, I'll tell you the point first. This is the relation of humanity. The relation of humanity. And what I want to show you here is that mankind had a special relationship with God that no other creature did. This is, this is what we'll see here. That, that we were created, we were made for God's enjoyment. God delighted in making us because he made us 
for relationship with him. This is uh, strongly implied by the way God made mankind. We see it again. Uh, God formed the man from the dust of the ground. God formed the man. All, all through Genesis 1, we see God spoke and it happened. He says, let there be light and it happened. Let there be vegetation and vegetation appears. Let there be animals and animals are there. But with God, we, we see almost this picture of God tenderly bending down, picking up the dust, and then as a potter forms a vessel, carefully shapes the man, the, the creation into who he wants him to be, this, this man. And then we see that God breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Again, this is, this is personal. This is intimate. You do not see God blowing breath into a cow's nose. We, we see this only with mankind, this personal relationship. And then we see that God communicates with mankind. He directly is talking to them. Uh, in verse 16, God uh, commands Adam, you may surely eat of the tree of the, the garden. God's talking to him. He's communicating with him. We, we'll see uh, this next week. Uh, later, God tells Adam, hey, name all the animals, okay? Na name the animals. God's communicating with Adam. And then this, I think, is a beautiful picture. When God creates woman who's been taken out of the sight of man, who leads Eve down the aisle <laughs> to, to her mate? We have a picture of the first wedding in the Bible where God, uh, sort of speak, walks the first bride down the aisle the way a father would lead his daughter down the aisle to give her in marriage. This is a personal, communicating, relational God. They were created for this. No other creature had this honor. No other creature has this joy. He personally and intimately forms us. He communicates with us. And he did this with them in just a perfect way. And that's from, from God's point of view. You think about God wants this relationship with us. But can I tell you something? Not only does God want a relationship with us, but our greatest need is a relationship with God. It's not a one-way street that God relates to us, that he plays with us like a, an ant farm. God wants to, to know us. He wants us to know him. God wants to speak to us. He wants us to speak to him. He wants to talk with us. He wants to lead us. He wants to, to uh, befriend us. He wants to comfort us. He wants to, to guide us. This is a relational God. We, we chase so many things in this life. We chase entertainment. We chase sports. We chase pleasure through whatever avenues. And what we really need, the thing we were really created specifically for, is a relationship with God. If you lack that relationship with God, you will never, ever be satisfied because you were made for that relationship with God. And even as a Christian, we still do this. I think of it, we put muddy water in the gas tank of our hearts and expect it to run like the, the combustible relationship with God would make us run. We're, we're not going to run the same. You put muddy water in your car, you're not getting very far. But you put the right thing, the thing that was made to run on gasoline, and it's going to run great. We were made to run on relationship with God. That was true in the garden, and that is still true of us. We are distinct. We are different. 
We're made in the image of God for a relationship with God. But here's the, the final point we'll look at today. One, one other different thing is the position of humanity. The position. We're talking about authority structures here. What is the, the position of authority in mankind when we were first created there in the garden? It says there in verse 15 of chapter 2, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. To work it and keep it. Well, what's that talking about? God's given him a job, work. But I think it's actually explained very well back in chapter 1. We can look at that again. Uh, 126 uh, starts by saying, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Here we go. And let them have dominion, or authority, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And we see this again in verse 28 of chapter 1. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We see here that the position of mankind is that we were uniquely in authority over all creation. God uniquely put us in authority, put Adam and Eve in authority. They, they were to subdue the earth, to have this dominion over it. I don't know exactly what that meant in a perfect world, to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. I think of it as sort of uh, making the, the perfect location of the Garden of Eden sort of spread out as they multiply. As the people multiply, this perfect location would, would, would grow with them. But this is stewardship. This, this authority. But what we also need to see is this. Though mankind was put in authority over creation, they remained under the authority of God. God puts us, he, we have this derived authority from God over creation, yet God remains in authority over us. We see that in verse 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, that's a, a statement of authority, isn't it? You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God is in authority over them. Now, why did God tell them, hey, don't, don't eat of this tree? Was it poisonous? Was, there, was it, you know, bitter? Was it, why would God tell them that? Well, we, we know from the Bible that everything was very good, so there would be no poisonous tree. There would be no bitter tree. The reason God puts this tree in the garden and tells them not to eat of it is to show his authority over them. It was an opportunity for mankind to show their allegiance and obey him under his authority. They've been given authority over everything, and in this one point, they are under his authority. I mean, they're under his authority in everything, but this is one area he said, don't do this. Do you trust me? Are you going to obey me that you should not do this? That you, that, do not do this. And the day that you eat of it, you will die. Now, they, they, they didn't physically die that day. They did eventually die. But they, they died spiritually when they ate. I want to point something out here. 
that I, I think is um, so important for us. I, I wish I had a way to just implant this in my brain and in my heart what I'm about to say to you. God's command was good. God's command was good. God did not say, hey, don't do this because I want to rob joy from you. Think about it, okay? God says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything on planet earth at this time in creation was good, entirely good. Adam and Eve already knew good, didn't they? All that they knew was good. All their thoughts were pleasant all the time because all they knew was good. What did they have to gain by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? They had only evil to gain. God makes a command to them, don't eat of this tree. Do not eat of this tree. And guess what? That command was good. Don't eat of this tree. You will gain the knowledge of evil. It will ruin our relationship. It will bring death and destruction into this world. Do not go against my commands. I love you, and I don't want that to happen to you. That's what God's command was. It was good for them. It was good for them to obey his command. They didn't see it. We'll find that out later when the fall comes. They see that it was good for food and that it would make one wise. They didn't see that it was bad for them to eat, but God said it, and he had commanded it for them to obey his authority and for their good. I want to tell you, every single command God gives you, don't do this, do this, it is for your good. Not supposed to have premarital sex. Not supposed to get drunk. Not, not supposed to, you know, steal. Man, I could have more. I'm not supposed to love money. Why? Why, why can't I do those things? What's the big deal? If God commanded it, it is for your good each and every time. And each and every time we give in to sin, we go against God's command, we are inviting bad, evil, wickedness, and darkness into our lives. Even as a Christian, when we choose bad, we are clouding that relationship we have with God. God is in authority over mankind, and his authority is good. We obey him for his glory and for our own joy. So, what's different about mankind? What makes us a peculiar creation? We see... That God, when he originally created everything, created everything, he created us to live in paradise, perfectly prepared for us. We see that we were formed as creatures of the dust, but then we were given the unique ability and the unique kind. We were a unique kind that was able to be in the image of God. We were made in the image of God. We were created with this capacity for relationship with God. That God wants a relationship with us, and we need a relationship with Him. We were created in authority over creation to steward it, but under the good, caring authority of God. What a blessing to know where we came from. If that doesn't put God in a good light, I don't know what does. 
We, we, we should never say, how, how come God would put us in this world with, with sin and, and evil and darkness and destruction? He didn't. He dropped us in a paradise where everything was good, where we reflected him, we, we uh, had enjoyed relationship with him and authority over everything we subdued. God, it's not God's fault that we're in this broken world. Man chose that. Man chose that. But as we will see further in Scripture, and as I, I hope you already know, there's a plan. That even though mankind fell away from this paradise, God is redeeming it. It's important that we understand this. God creates, man falls, he redeems, and there's one more thing there. There's consummation. There will be a day. There will be a day where the Garden of Eden is not even all that spectacular compared to what we will be in. Fullness of joy. You read uh, the, the descriptions of heaven in the Bible, and it is mind-blowing. The new Jerusalem, mind-blowing. The beauty, the joy, the pleasure, the, the uninhibited relationship with God, that is what we are destined for because of Christ. So how do we respond to this? How do we respond to knowing where we came from, God's original creation of mankind? There's a lot we could think about as we come to this communion table, which is reserved for those who have trusted in Christ and are walking with him. But I think it would be helpful for us to just think about God's goodness. Nothing bad, nothing dark in this world that is actually bad, it might feel bad at the time, is from God. God is good and only does good all the time. We see that from the beginning in creation. Think about God's goodness. And then with that, think about this good God that wants to have a personal relationship with you. He wants you to walk with him, to talk with him. That's what God wants. Think about that. And then think about God's authority in the goodness of his commands. If you have some sin in your life that you're saying, I'm just going to keep doing this. I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to, I'm going to, uh, you know, block out conviction. I'm not going to get accountable with someone else so that I can actually get rid of this sin because I like it. I think it will be best for me. If you think that, you're wrong. God's commands are good. It's infinitely good for you to repent of sin and cling to Christ Jesus. You can think about these things. God's goodness, this personal relationship, and following God's authority. Now, there may be some in here who don't have a relationship with this creator, God. I just want to tell you that God has made a way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You can have that relationship with God by trusting in Christ Jesus, his work, his death on the cross, paying for your sins, giving you righteousness as he rose from the dead. You can trust in God. You can have that relationship. You can run on what you were created to run on. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you 
that you have revealed your work to us. You don't leave us in the dark about these questions we might have. 